This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Words of integration and guidance, Starhawk. Community, somewhere there are people to whom we can speak with passion without having the words catch in our throats. Somewhere a circle of hands will open to receive us. Eyes will light up as we enter. Voices will celebrate with us whenever we come into our own power. Community means strength that joins our strength to do the work that needs to be done. Arms to hold us when we falter. A circle of healing, a circle of friends. Somewhere we can be free. And a second from William Sloan Coffin. The new survival unit is no longer the individual nation. It's the entire human race and its environment. This newfound oneness is only a rediscovery of an ancient religious truth. Unity is not something we are called to create. It's something we are called to recognize. And now a reading of scripture from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, from the message. If with heart and soul you're doing good, do you think you can be stopped? Even if you suffer for it, you're still better off. Don't give the opposition a second thought. Through thick and thin, keep your hearts at attention, in adoration before Christ. Be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way you are, and always with the utmost courtesy. Keep a clear conscience before God, so that when people throw mud at you, none of it will stick. They'll end up realizing that they're the only ones who need a bath. It's better to suffer for doing good, if that's what God wants, than to be punished for doing bad. That's what Christ did. Suffered because of others' sins. He went through it all, was put to death, and then made alive to bring us to God. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The Holy Gospel according to John 14, 15 to 21. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world, will no, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father. And I will love them and reveal myself to them. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. There was a man who had no enemies, only friends. He had a gift for friendship. 
When he met someone for the first time, he would look into the man or the woman or the child's eyes, and he never afterward mistook them for someone else. He was as kind as the day is long, and no one imposed on his kindness. He had a beautiful wife who loved him. He had a comfortable, quiet apartment in town and a beautiful little house by the sea. He had enough money. All summer, he taught children to sail boats on the salt water, and on winter afternoons, he sat in his club and helped old men with one foot in the grave to remember names so they could get on with their recollecting. If necessary, he even helped them to remember the point of their recollection, which he had usually heard before. In the club, he was never alone for a minute. If he sat down by the magazine table, the other members gathered around him like fruit flies, the young, uneasy new members, as well as his bald-headed contemporaries. The places he had lived in stretched halfway around the world, and he was a natural-born storyteller. His conversation went to the head like wine. At the same time, it went straight to the heart. He was a lovely man, and there aren't any more like him. But there was also in the same club a man who had no friends. And of course, not a single enemy either. He was always alone. He had never married. Though he had too much money, no one had ever successfully put the finger on him. He did not drink, and if someone who had been drinking maybe a little too much nodded to him on the way upstairs to the dining room, he did not respond, lest it turn out that he had been mistaken for somebody else. He tried sitting at the common table in the hope that it would broaden his mind, but it was not the way he had been given to understand it would be, so he moved to a table by the window, a table for two, and for company, he had an empty plate that did not contradict itself, a clean napkin that lived wholly in the present, a glittering glass tumbler that had its facts and figures straight, an unprejudiced knife, an unsentimental fork, and two logical spoons. Actually, his belonging to this particular club at all was due to a mistake on the part of the secretary and the committee on admissions who had been instructed to notify another man of the same name that he had been elected to membership. So begins William Maxwell's story, the man who had no friends and didn't want any. One of our greatest fears in life is that we will be alone, that we won't have any friends, that we too will be left alone at a table with an unsentimental fork and two logical spoons. We experience this quite keenly as children. When out on the playground, teams are picked and we worry that we'll be picked last, right? Or maybe we won't be picked at all. We experience this as adolescents when we only know there's a party on Friday night because we overheard others talking about it on Monday morning. We experience it as adults learning about events or happenings that we would have loved to have joined, but we only see about it as we scroll through our social media feed. We experience this fear of being alone with the longing to meet someone and be in a relationship that works, and sometimes it seems only other people get that opportunity. And even if we have many good relationships and even a caring family, we still, in our heart of hearts, sometimes worry that we really are all alone. 
Well, our text today is in the setting of the Last Supper where Jesus is sharing a final meal with the disciples. And if you recall from last time, we noted that this chapter in chapter 14 extends from a scene happening a chapter earlier in John chapter 13. And there Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, sharing the bread and wine, and telling them about his upcoming suffering and death. And he also tells them, as he's speaking about the road he's about to travel, that they can't come with him. At least not now. And so the disciples, unsurprisingly, are dismayed. They too have the fear that they'll now be left alone. Their teacher, their rabbi, their spiritual guide, their friend, he's leaving them, and they're going to be left alone in a hostile world. Great. Now what? Our text begins in verse 15 with Jesus saying, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, what commandments? The only commandment that Jesus is reported to have given in the entire Gospel of John just happened in the same scene. In fact, in our text from last week, just a few verses earlier in chapter 13, where Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. So why does Jesus speak of commandments, plural? Well, the word for commandment in Hebrew is mitzvah, plural mitzvot. And sometimes mitzvah just means a good deed to do, but it's also the the actual word translated uh, that we translate into commandment. And in classic Jewish understanding, there are 613 commandments in the Torah, the five books that God uh, gave through Moses. Well, the medieval rabbi Maimonides... Try saying that fast. Maimonides. He saw the mitzvot or the commandments as a type of springboard to help people sort of launch into good spiritual intention. And of course, Moses is known as the greatest teacher who ever lived, Jewish understanding. And in the fifth book of the Torah, Deuteronomy, This is known as Moses' farewell discourse. Moses is going to leave the people that he has led. They've been in the desert. They're about to come to the promised land, and he's about to leave. And so this whole book of Deuteronomy, in a way, is Moses giving his farewell address to the people of Israel. Well, just as he gave a farewell discourse, this section of John's gospel is often referred to as the Last Supper discourse or Jesus' farewell discourse. And so maybe there's some... Parallels here. As Moses is giving his farewell, he speaks of keeping the commandments over 30 times. Over 30 times. And three times he associates loving God with keeping God's commandments. And so in a way, perhaps we might see the gospel writer here working to connect Jesus and Moses. And just as the people haven't been alone since Moses left, right, a long time ago, but of course he left with them, Writings, his wisdom, teachings. So they'll not be alone when Jesus leaves. They've been given commandments or guidelines how to live with each other and with God. And the same will be true now with Jesus. 
in the Synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus famously simplified the entire Torah, all the law and the prophets, into two simple things, right? Love God and love your neighbor. And here in the Gospel of John, he condenses it even more. Simply love one another. Love one another. And so just as Moses, the greatest teacher in Jewish history, gave a farewell, so Jesus is giving here a farewell. And yet here, it seems Jesus goes a step further. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth. So it seems that Jesus is saying this is something that's going to happen. This will happen. God will give you this spirit of truth. But then interestingly, Jesus says, you know him because he abides in you seemingly now and will be in you seemingly future. Wes Howard Brook in his commentary on John says, this is an example of the several temporal perspectives of the Last Supper discourse, right? We have multiple, almost multiple timelines happening here. So Jesus can be describing what's happening right now in that present moment as he's with the disciples. But also we have a perspective in this text, it seems, of the community of the Gospel of John, the Johannine community, which is going to be 60 to 70 years later, as well as our own presence there in that text. All future readers of this Gospel of John. Sort of like a good television show will do like Lost. You know, there'll be flashbacks to the time before people were on the island and you get a glimpse of what their life was like and what was happening and then it comes back to the present. Or Breaking Bad where you get sort of a um, future glimpse. Uh, What's that called? Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. There's one other word. Flash forward. I feel like there's one other word. You know what I'm trying to say. You get a little snippet of what's coming, right? They'll open, sometimes they'll open an episode with something and you won't see it till the very end and you're, oh, that's what's happening there. So we have this multiple time perspectives happening here as Jesus is speaking. And it reminds us that when we read Jesus in the fourth gospel, we're in the presence of a wise spiritual teacher and a mystic. And one thing mystics tend to discover is that underneath all of existence is a deep unity, a oneness. Yet we imagine that we're separate from each other. I'm here. You're where you are. I'm not you. You're not me. I'm not this podium. You're not the chair you're sitting on. We're not connected to trees or rocks or oceans. Or are we? Or are we? It's said that if you place two living heart cells from different people in the same Petri dish, that over time they will find and maintain a third and common beat. Two different people, two different hearts, put together will eventually beat in time. What if we really are connected at a fundamental level? We're just not aware of it. Sufi mystic Llewellyn Vaughn Lee puts it this way, oneness is not a metaphysical idea, but something so simple and ordinary. It is in every breath. It's in the wing beat of every butterfly in every piece of garbage left in the city streets. This oneness is life. 
Life no longer experienced solely through the fragmented vision of the ego, but known within the heart, felt in the soul. This oneness is the heartbeat of life, he says. This oneness is creation's recognition of its creator. This oneness is life celebrating life and its divine origin. These disciples are afraid of being left alone. And we know what that's like. My kids know what that's like. Probably shouldn't say that. Because we live out of busing zone for our kids, we drive them to school and pick them up, and sometimes they have staggered end-of-day schedules with sports and things like that, and often it's the older boys who have a sports thing going on, and, and Josephine is kind of waiting after school to be picked up, and because I don't want to sit at school for an hour, sometimes I'm a little late to pick up Josephine, and so she kind of sitting there with her backpack, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. I think Dad's coming, but I wonder. I really shouldn't share this. But. <laughs> but we know what it's like to be worried we'll be left alone. And so do these disciples. And Jesus to them says, In a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. You are in me, and I am in you. Jesus is talking about a deep and fundamental unity, a oneness between Jesus and God, between us and Jesus, and therefore between us and God. This is really an astounding statement. It means that it's possible for us to have the same close relationship with God that Jesus did. Does that seem possible? A little heretical? <laughs> well, many consider uh, the Gospel of John to portray Jesus with a, what's in theological terms called a high Christology. It focuses on Jesus' divine nature. But one scholar notes that we must also consider the Gospel of John to have a high humanity. A high humanity. And I think this is very important because we're often told one of the most important things in the New Testament is that it tells us that Jesus is God. But we easily skip over the parts where Jesus tells us that we can do the same things that he can do and even greater. And in fact, that's in the same setting here, just a few verses earlier in chapter 14. Jesus, all the things that I've done, you will do these things and even greater. And he says we can have the same relationship with God that he had. That's amazing. Man. Ultimately, Jesus says to his disciples, you are not alone. You are not alone. Not now and not in the future. And I think that's ultimately the good news of what Jesus is extending in this farewell discourse. That at bottom, we are never separated from Jesus or God. We are one. In our reading, we heard William Sloan Coffin note that this oneness is not a new idea, but a very ancient religious truth. And it's not something we create or manufacture. 
we simply become aware of it. And I think we can feel or discover this connection powerfully in many settings, perhaps on a personal retreat, on a hike alone in the woods, sitting quietly beside a lake. I think many of us would think back to experiences that we've had in nature, and particularly in nature alone, and felt sort of this deep connection to everything, to nature, to God, to all things. And yet I wonder if this connection doesn't happen just as strong, or maybe even stronger, in community. All of the statements in verses 15 to 20 in our text today are addressed to a collective you, a plural you. Jesus is not just speaking to the disciples as individuals, but to the disciples as a community. So in other words, this sense of connection to God and to all things happens especially when we're gathered with others, other human beings with open hearts and with a common desire to love one another. As we love one another, we discover God among us and within us. Starhawk in our reading put it beautifully. In fact, I'm going to read it again. She said, community, somewhere there are people to whom we can speak with passion without having the words catch in our throats. Somewhere a circle of hands will open to receive us. Eyes will light up as we enter. Voices will celebrate us whenever we come into our own power. Community means strength that joins our strength to do the work that needs to be done. Arms to hold us when we falter. A circle of healing. A circle of friends somewhere we can be free. That's beautiful. In reflecting on the Petri dish and the two cell hearts coming together, Mark Nepo says, perhaps this is the secret. That every time we dare to voice what beats within, we invite some other cell of some other heart to find what lives between us and sing. So whatever our differences this morning, or however isolated we might feel, there is a deep and underlying unity. Jesus says, you are not alone. You are in me, and I am in you. We are one. Amen. And namaste.
journey of the disciples. Well, friends, go with the knowledge that you are not alone. Go simply, lightly, gently in search of love. And may you recognize and know that God's Spirit is with you now and always. Amen. Amen. And go in peace. Invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.